Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. I remember uh, early on in Candeo's life, I remember it was hard to get families to come to this new little church plant that was meeting over at Central Middle School. And one of the reasons was because uh, they go, well, what do, you, what do you have for my kids? And we were like, well, we have like four kids and <laughs> uh, we have something on Sundays. We, we had this uh, box because everything was mobile, right? And we called it the coffin because, and it had basically all of Candeo kids in this one box. And we called it the coffin because if you got run over by this box, you were dead. And so... Uh, <laughs> um, so it's fun to look forward to, to be able to stand here, you know, almost 10 years later and, and see our stage filled with, with kids and with teenagers uh, who really are the future leaders of our church and um, our next church planters, the next pastors and elders and deacons of, of Candeo. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful for what God's doing here uh, among our kids and in our youth. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you don't know where that is, it's right after 1 Corinthians, all right? So 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 8. We're continuing our Family Matters series this morning, and over the course of this series, we've been looking at different beliefs and practices um, that we have as a church and, and really answering the question, why do we do these things, and or why do we believe these things, and, and why should we live in these ways? I, I want to real quickly here at the beginning, I just want to add a couple footnotes to last week's message. So Stephen last week um, talked about the doctrine of complementarianism. Now, I'm, I'm not saying these things because I've been inundated with emails since that message. I haven't. Uh, part of that's because Stephen didn't give my correct email address. So, uh, <laughs> so perhaps that's maybe why your email didn't go through. All right. But um, it's not because of that. It's simply because that's such a big topic to cover in one Sunday. I just thought I'd add a, a few things. First off, um, when it comes to the doctrine of complementarianism, while Candeo is a complementarian church, that is not to say that in order to come to Candeo or even be a member at Candeo, that you must be complementarian. And the reason for that is because we don't see complementarianism as, as an essential doctrine of the Christian faith on the same level of the reality of the resurrection, the incarnation uh, of Jesus Christ, things like that. That makes sense. And so that is to say that while that, that's not to say that the doctrine is unimportant, but it is to say that it's not of utmost importance. And so you could certainly be a, a member and a thriving believer here at Candeo and, and hold to a different view. There are plenty of believers who hold to a different view than we do as a church who are God-fearing, Bible-believing, faithful Christians who we will worship with together one day in heaven. And so uh, I thought that that was worth saying uh, so that, just to put it in, into an order of priority for us so that as we interact with each other, not just on this doctrine, but really on other doctrines of secondary value that we would engage one another with grace and charity and a lot of patience. All right, and so that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that for the last several years, we've had on our website a position paper on this very topic, and uh, while you can see it on the website for sure, we printed off a few copies that are back in the resource center for you, so if you want a physical copy to kind of read through uh, that statement that our elders wrote, wrote up several years ago, you can do that. And I would just commend two books to you as well. I know this little preamble is going a bit long, but um, two books, if you're really interested in this, the first one would be, and it's actually back in our resource center, um, 
in our resource library that you can actually just check out and borrow, uh, please bring it back though, um, is a little book called Two, it's not little, it's medium, medium-sized book, called Two Views on Women in Ministry. That's one, if you go, if you look at that medium-sized book and you're like, I'm not gonna read that. Uh, I would commend to you, perhaps, I, an equally as good resource, if not better because of its brevity, uh, a little paper that Kathy Keller wrote called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. It's about 40 pages. You can read it in one sitting. It's a little, it's a, they're little 40 pages, all right? So um, Kathy Keller wrote that, and uh, it's absolutely fantastic. So there's the preamble, right? All right. So we're, we're in our series called Family Matters, and Here's what's true for all of us this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not, here's what's true. Is that the hopes that you have for the future are largely, if not entirely, determined by what you believe the meaning of life to be. The hopes that you have for your future are largely determined by what you understand the purpose, the meaning of life to be, whether it's for yourself or for your kids or for your grandkids, the hope that you have for yours or for their future is determined by what you believe the meaning of life is. For example, if the purpose of life is, is comfort, if that's the ultimate purpose, the meaning of life is to be comfortable, to be happy, then what you are going to hope for is that you're gonna hope for a relatively easy, good-paying job with a nice benefits package and a lot of vacation days, right? That's what you'll hope for. That's maybe for you as a college student. If you think the meaning of life is, is comfort, then you are going to orient your degree program around attaining that kind of job. Or maybe if for you the, the, the meaning of life or the purpose of life is, is honor or strength or valor or something like that, you'll perhaps have hopes for the future that, that you want to find ways to overcome adversity. You, want, you hope that in your future there are ways that you can display your strength. You go, who in the world would do that? Have you ever met a CrossFit person? That's who would do that, right? You, you, if they're in CrossFit, you've met them because they've let you know they're in CrossFit, right? So, <laughs> like... Like CrossFit is the pyramid scheme of exercise program, you know what I mean? Or maybe, maybe like a Tough mutter or something like that, some sort of like hard thing that you'll pay money and you'll travel long distance because well, the purpose of life is honor, you know? Or maybe if, maybe if you believe that the meaning of life or the purpose of life is success or status, then you'll hope for a promotion. You'll hope for that degree, you'll hope for that award or that acknowledgement. You see what I mean? The things, the things that you hope for for your future are largely determined by what you believe the meaning of life is. Now here's the problem though, is that if there is nothing beyond this life, and if you then, then take everything you would ever aspire for, everything you would ever hope for, to its very end, if there is nothing beyond this life, then ultimately, in the end, everything is meaningless. Thomas Nagel, who is, uh, was a philosopher at New York University and an atheist, by the way, he wrote a little, a little book on philosophy. That, those are the best kinds of philosophy books, little ones. 
And he, he wrote a little book on philosophy called What Does It All Mean? And he begins his final chapter by saying this. He says, even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read for thousands of years from now, even if you do that, eventually the solar system will cool or the, or the universe will wind down or collapse and all trace of your efforts will vanish. You say, my, that's wildly optimistic. But it makes sense, right? In other words, what he's saying is, is that if this life is all that there is, then it makes all the sense in the world that you would ask the question, why does anything matter? Why does anything matter? And essentially, if, if you read, if you go further on into the chapter, essentially the solution that he gives to this problem is, well, yes, that's true, ultimately nothing matters, but, it, but so long as you don't think about it very much, you'll be okay. Just don't think about it. Just preoccupy yourself. Now, my guess is that for most of us in this room, that that answer is not exactly satisfactory. And when a culture or a person does away with God or any sense of a future beyond this life, what inevitably happens is that that culture or person become, becomes consumed with consumption. Become, becomes consumed with accumulation, becomes consumed with finding ways to numb or distract ourselves from the reality that is if, if there is nothing beyond this life, then get while the getting is good and pursue comfort at all costs because this is all that there is. But what we have in 2 Corinthians Actually, chapters 8 and 9. We're just going to be in chapter 8 today. What we have in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that we have Paul showing us how the Christian hope for a future beyond this life should actually, should actually impact the way that we interact with the things of this life. How the Christian hope for a future beyond this life should impact the way that we interact with and engage with the things of this life, primarily what we're gonna look at this morning is the way that we approach finances. Now, before you go, oh boy, here we go. I know where this, I already know the conclusion of this sermon. Are you gonna pass the plate, right? No, we don't even have plates, all right? So just, just hang on with me, all right? So first, or 2 Corinthians chapter eight, one through 15, it says this. This is Paul the Apostle talking. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped, Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I'm giving advice because it is profitable for you 
who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now also finish the task, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if, the, for if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but, is a, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. So what we have here is the Apostle Paul has taken upon himself the task of taking up a collection for the various churches in Jerusalem and Judea. Because over the years, in Jerusalem and Judea, there had been wars, there had been famine, there had been persecution. And by this point that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he is taking up an offering among the churches in the surrounding region because these believers in Jerusalem and Judea were, were so impoverished, were in such great need that he's asking these fellow believers to contribute to meeting their needs. So Paul is unashamedly asking these Corinthian believers to see this need and to do something about it. And the first way that he, uh, that he tries to motivate them towards this generosity is actually by using fellow believers as an example. That's where we started off here in chapter eight, where he's talking about these believers in Macedonia, right? These Macedonian believers who are much worse off than them, than the Corinthian believers. And yet, for the Macedonians, it was their affliction and their poverty that didn't result in stinginess, but actually resulted in them, you see that there, verse four, and then begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. And so what this shows us right off the bat as it relates to Christian generosity is that Christian generosity is not first motivated by ideal circumstances. But instead, Christian generosity is motivated by love. Christian generosity is not motivated by ideal circumstances. See, you see, if, if anyone had a reason to not be generous because of their circumstances, it would have been the Macedonians, right? I mean, Paul, Paul used the first several verses to describe the, the affliction that they were in, the, the extreme poverty. They're in extreme poverty of any people who would say, they're in need, we're in need too. I just, I... I just can't make that work right now. We have a few other goals we're trying to, to meet. Of all the people who could use their circumstances as an excuse to not be generous, it would have been the Macedonians. But instead, what Paul is showing these Corinthian believers and what he's showing us is that their deep devotion to the Lord resulted in deep devotion to one another, which resulted in tremendous generosity because their love for their brothers and sisters exceeded any love that they would have for their possessions. They were eager to give, and now Paul is eager to turn around and ask the Corinthians to consider following their example. It, it's interesting how often the Bible talks about possessions. How often the Bible talks about money. It, it, the Bible talks about money and possessions 
uh, more than almost any other topic. I don't know if you knew that. And yet the reality is, is that talking about money is, is a bit taboo in polite society, isn't it? Like, it's a bit weird. It seems as though maybe, maybe you've been in a connection group. Um, I've had this experience where it's like, it's almost not weird to talk about hardly anything, but the minute you start talking about money, everyone starts to feel a little yucky. Like, oh, we shouldn't be talking about this, especially in the Midwest, right? We're very nice. We don't want to offend people. It's very personal, right? It's so taboo to talk about money in society in general, and it, and it seems especially in the church, and what's, what's interesting is, is that it's really easy for us to want the Bible to answer questions that the Bible actually isn't interested in answering. Like, questions like, what job should I take? What city should I live in? What, what, what major should I pursue? Should I marry this person? Are essential oils magical potions? I don't, I don't know. Like, what does the Bible have to say about essential oils? We're very easy at asking questions that the Bible actually is not interested in answering. And yet, isn't it interesting how we can also totally, we can totally avoid topics that the Bible is explicitly, is, is explicit in teaching, right? And this year, I, th I think it'll be 12 years that I've, that I've been a pastor. In my 12 years as a pastor, one struggle that I've never, I have never heard anyone say that they struggle with greed. I've heard people, I've heard people say they struggle with a lot of things. A lot, a lot of things that you'd go, I can't believe you just said that. But I cannot, I, I cannot remember one time hearing anyone say they struggle with greed. Is perhaps the reason for that because actually none of us think that we're all that greedy. We actually don't self-assess as being greedy or materialistic. Now, wouldn't it be a curious thing, though, for the Bible to speak so much about something that actually none of us struggle with? Now, why is it that most of us, I'm guessing, that most of us don't think that we're greedy? Why is that? Why do none of us think that we're greedy? Well, there's something really interesting in this passage. Look at verse eight. It's really easy to miss, but I think this holds a bit of, a bit of the key as to why very few of us, if probably none of us, think that we're actually greedy. Look at verse eight. It's real short. It's really easy to miss. He says, I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not saying this as a command. The Bible talks a lot about generosity. Paul wants these Corinthian believers to be generous, just like their Macedonian brothers and sisters. But then, he, but then he is very explicit to say, but I'm not commanding you to do this. I want you to do it, but I'm not commanding you to do it. In fact, if, if you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll see that, that several times over the course of those two chapters, that Paul says multiple times that he isn't commanding them to do this, but instead he's simply saying, I want you to want to do this. He could say, I'm, 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 a, I'm an apostle, I'm a, I'm a leader, I'm a spiritual father to many, to many of you, like, but, he, but I'm not telling you that you must do this. I only want you to do this if you want to do this. Now think about this. Compare this to really any other area of Christian ethics. 
Like you're not gonna find Paul saying, I only want you to not murder people only if you really don't want to. This isn't a command. I understand. I just want you to, I want you to want to not murder people. I only want you to be faithful to your spouse only if you really want to. I want you to, li- I want you to not lie on your taxes only if you really want to. I want you to not steal only if you really want to not steal. Like compare, compare what Paul's saying here in 2 Corinthians 8 to any other area of Christian ethics. You see, the fact that Paul isn't giving them a command, the fact that Paul isn't telling them, like, here's the exact amount that you need to give in order to be generous. The fact that he doesn't say that shows us that unlike any other area of Christian ethics, that greed and materialism have no external measure by which you can tell whether or not you're greedy. You can tell whether or not you've murdered somebody. They're right there. You can tell whether or not you've cheated on your spouse. You can tell whether or not you've stolen something. But what we see here is that the fact that Paul is telling them, I'm not, I'm not commanding you to do this, is showing us that when it comes to greed and materialism, it's not quite as simple as just looking at the external measure, like the external amount of what you do or don't give, and then being able to determine based on that external amount, oh, I'm not a greedy person because I give this much. There's no level of giving that you can look at. There's no level of giving that I could stand up here and say, well, so long churches, so long as you give this much, you're generous, and if you don't give this much, then you're greedy. There, there's, there, there's no way for me to say that, and there's no, there's, the scriptures don't say that. Because generosity in the Bible is not primarily a matter of amount. Generosity in the Bible is primarily a matter of attitude. Generosity in Scripture is not primarily in the amount that you give. It's primarily in the attitude in which you give that amount. A widow's might, Luke chapter 21, just, just a, a fraction of a penny given by a widow it is, is seen as an extreme act of radical generosity. But then an enormous check could simply be given as a way to justify yourself or to make yourself look a certain way in front of other people. Do you see what this means? Do you see what this means? That This means that there's no way to tell whether or not you're generous simply by looking at the amount you give. And so for all of you type A people in the room right now, you're going, what am I supposed to do with that then? <laughs> that messes up my, my list. Like my list of things I need to get done. You know, like, if there is no box, I don't know how to live life without a box to check. You know, some of you are like that. I understand that. And you go, what am I supposed to do? You see, what we see and what Paul is saying is that the way to know if you're generous is more radical than most of us actually think. Because it appears as though 
that the way to tell whether or not you're generous or greedy, being that generosity is ultimately a matter of the heart. You go, how, how do I know? The way to know, the only way to know whether you're generous or greedy is to be joyfully and aggressively proactive in finding ways to give as often and as much so that it actually affects your life. And you like doing it. Like that's, that's the only way to tell. Is that, is that you, you just eagerly and continually find ways to give as often and as much as you can until it actually affects like the way that you have to live your life and you like doing it until then, what we're seeing here is that until you're being generous in that way, joyfully and sacrificially, until you're doing that, there's actually no way to tell whether or not you're generous or greedy. You say, that, that's much different than, than what I've heard. So that's, that's, that's much more radical. How in the world can anyone actually live like that? Because it's pretty counterintuitive, right? Well, one way that this kind of Christian generosity begins is when we realize that everything that we have, everything that you have, is actually a gift. You might ask, where do you get that? I get that in verses 14 and 15. Look at this, verse 14, where Paul says, at the present time, your surplus is available for their needs so that, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. And then, so he's talking about generosity. And then he goes on and he uses a verse from Exodus chapter 16 that says, the person who had much did not have too much and the person who had little did not have too little. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about? Why is Paul bringing up this this obscure verse from Exodus chapter 16. Well, what's happening here in Exodus chapter 16, Paul is talking about, Paul's talking about manna. Manna in the wilderness. You might've heard of this, right? When Israel was in the desert and needed food, every morning God sent manna. Manna was, manna was a kind of, of, uh, of bread, like flaky bread. Many, many people think it was, many people think it was essentially like a graham cracker. Graham crackers from heaven, that'd be nice, right? Could you send some marshmallows as well and Hershey's God? That'd be great. So, but like manna in the desert where the Israelites needed food and so God would send this bread from heaven where they could then go out and gather it. Now the people who were, who were physically able to go out and gather this manna would go out and gather it to, to, varying, to varying amounts and they'd come back and they would pool it all together and then distribute it amongst one another in the community so that no one had too much, no one had too little. Now the thing about manna was that it didn't just show up in the cupboard, right? Which you go, well, there, God could have done that. Why not do that? But it didn't just like show up in the cupboard. But instead, they, they had to go out and they had to work for it. But no one, no one would have, would have thought to say, as they're coming back with the manna, no one would have thought to say, I have worked hard for this manna. Look at all the manna I have, I have earned. No one would say that. Because you knew, because you just knew. 
You knew that the only reason that the manna was there to gather in the first place was the fact that God had given it, that it was a gift of grace from the Lord. But many of us, good, hardworking, individualistic Americans, we can so often look around at what we have and, and say, I have earned this. I'm a hard worker. That's why I have what I have. I worked so hard. This is mine. But might I suggest, if that's your attitude towards your possessions, might I suggest that if you were born in the Andes Mountains in Ecuador in the 14th century, no amount of hard work would have ever gotten you what you have today. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the money that you have, the possessions that you have, the things that you have are just as much a gift from God as the manna was in the desert. Now, if, if, you, if you remember back to Exodus chapter 16, if you remember something interesting about manna, though, is that God sent it every morning. Each person was allotted a certain amount. That was enough for what they needed for that day. But if you tried to hoard it, if you just weren't sure if God was gonna provide and you thought, oh, I'm just gonna keep, I'm just gonna keep some extra just like in case, right? Remember what happened? It rotted with maggots. And in much the same way, if you keep too much of what you have for yourself, if you save too much for yourself, that just like the manna rotted with maggots, your possessions will rot your soul. Now, I already know some of you are going, well, Jake, does that mean that I can't save anything? Does that mean that saving and investing is wrong? Does, does that mean that if I don't give away all that I have, that I'm some sort of greedy pig? Like, is that what Paul is saying? Well, what Paul isn't doing is, is he isn't contradicting Proverbs chapter six. Remember Proverbs chapter six, where, where it refers to the ant. And the wisdom of the ant and saving up and working hard and saving to ensure that, that it would have enough for the future. What Paul isn't doing is he isn't contradicting. He isn't saying that, that Christians can never save money, can never invest money. But instead, what Paul is doing is he's doing two things. First, he's, he's reorienting the purpose of saving. He's, reorient, he's reorienting the purpose and the intention of saving and investing. And he's saying, don't save and invest to ensure your future comfort. Save and invest to ensure your future generosity. But then secondly, we also see that saving and investing should not be an excuse for stinginess right now. You see, some of us, in an attempt to justify ourselves, we would say, well, I'm saving and investing. I can't, I can't, I can't be generous at all right now because I'm saving. I, I want to be generous when I'm in my 60s, my 70s, my 80s. I, so I'm saving for then. But what we see, really, is that you can't know that you'll be a generous person in the future until you practice joyful generosity right now. 
And so this isn't to say that it's wrong to save or invest, but it is to reorient the purpose of such saving and investing so that you would ensure future generosity and your confidence that you'll be generous in the future is actually based in your ability to be joyfully generous now. Now you might say, okay, I want to, be, I wa- I want, to want to be joyful. That's, that's where, hey, can I just say as a pastor, a lot of times my, my, uh, when, I, when I'm sitting with someone and they're struggling with something, the goal is not to turn, you know, it's not to turn them into a saint and stained glass, right? It's to just go, if we can at least get to the point where we want to want to do this, I'm gonna call that a win, all right? So how, you might say, I want to want to do this. Where in the world do I start? Real quick, just two things. Remember, I'm not saying this as a command. But two things that would maybe be helpful if you just don't know where to start first. Practice planned, consistent giving. Practice planned, consistent giving. If you don't have a budget, make a budget. Budgets are good. I, I am not, I'm not the most organized person in the world. Anyone who knows me knows that, right? Uh, and I'm even less good with spreadsheets, all right? So my budget isn't even on a spreadsheet. I'm, I, listen, I had to Google how to make a table in Google Docs, okay? So that's where I'm at when it comes to organization, okay? But budgets are good. It's good to know where your money is going and how it is being used and, and, and to, to make a plan for how you intend to use and invest God's gift to you, all right? So if you don't have a budget, be a good steward and make a budget, all right? And then plan how you will regularly give away your money in such a way that it actually affects your lifestyle. You say, how much is that? I go, I don't know. I don't know how much that is for you. Now, now what we do see in scripture is that the, the Bible gives us a bit of a rule of thumb in what's called the tithe. The tithe is, means, it simply means 10%, giving away 10% of your income giving it away. And that's because in, in most places, in most cultures, in most times, for most people, giving away 10% of their income would have actually affected the way that they, that they had to live their life. And for many of you, that's, that's perhaps the case, that if you imagine giving away 10% of your income, you go, that would, that would change things. I would have to do some things that are different. I go, great. Then maybe that's where you start. For some of you, though, when you imagine giving away 10% of your income, it hardly moves the needle. And so for you, the 10% almost feels like a, feels like a, like a relief. Where it's like, ah, that's nothing. I give more to monthly subscriptions. Find ways to give consistently in such a way that it will actually impact your life. Consistent love for God and his work will result in consistent generosity. You see, if, if, if you simply live your, if, if, if your approach to generosity is simply, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna simply give sporadically. What, what Paul is simply suggesting here is that sporadic generosity ultimately equals sporadic joy. So do you wanna be joyful consistently or do you wanna be joyful sporadically? That's the question. All right, so that's the first one. Number two, again, I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not. As you adjust your lifestyle for planned, consistent giving, one thing, this, one thing that my wife and I have found, this is not a command, 
One thing that, have I said that enough? I'm just saying, one, one thing that my wife and I have found that has increased our joy, in addition to planned consistent giving, has been planned spontaneous giving. Now you might go, Jake, that's an oxymoron. That makes no sense. Planned spontaneous. That aren't those opposites. Here, here's simply what I mean. What I mean is, what that looks like is that in addition to regular consistent giving, having a line in your budget where you set aside money each month so that when a random need that you don't yet know about comes up, you have already planned to be able to be sporadically generous, spontaneously generous towards a need that you don't yet know about. But certainly, living in a fallen world, there will be needs that come up that you'll come across. And what a joy it is to have already planned to know, to, at least to be able to contribute to helping meet that need. So, Christian, give and find ways to give until it actually means you have to change the way that you live. Now notice, Paul starts off here by using the Macedonians as, as an example to the Corinthians to, kind of, to, to encourage them, to spur them on in their generosity. But pretty quickly what we see is that Paul moves fairly quickly away from the Macedonians to give another example. How can we grow and want to be generous? It's by knowing Verse nine, it's by knowing the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Now this is interesting. So we, we've said that the only way to know if you're generous is to give in such a way that it actually affects your life. And so the question has to be, how does someone with infinite resources Infinity minus a trillion is still infinity. How in the world does someone with infinite, unlimited, inexhaustible resources give at such a level that it actually affects their life? Is it not by giving their very life? And what we have with Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ, the richest person in all the universe, the King of kings and Lord of lords, did just that by seeing our need and giving his very life. You see, it's when you actually understand the generosity of Christ and when he becomes the meaning of your life, your ultimate meaning, your ultimate purpose, it's then that you'll become a person who doesn't find your meaning and money or possessions or accumulation, but instead you'll be able to give gladly and generously because at the end of the day, your ultimate hope is beyond this life and beyond this world. It's seated with Christ in the heavens. So church, how do you become a generous person? How do we become a generous people? See how Jesus joyfully gave of himself for our sake. See how he joyfully gave and sacrificed of himself for our need. Look at what he's done. Now let's go and do likewise. Let's pray.
Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, the unearned favor of God. Oh, what a gift of grace that you have met our greatest need through your own generosity. God, I pray that we as a people would be so grateful, would be so enthralled, would be so captivated by the beauty of Christ that we would be known as a generous people with our things, with our finances, with our time, with our very lives. And that we would do it joyfully. That when, that when people see our generosity and, they, and, and it, it becomes remarkable to them that, that we're a bit confused because we think, how else, how else could I live? Because of what Christ has done for us. Oh, would you loosen our grip on our things? And would you strengthen our grip on you, Jesus? So that we'd be a joyfully generous people in response to who you are and what you have done. Would that be true of us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.